Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Ridley Scott and Jodie Comer on their epic new movie, The Last Jew. Mark Royal reviews Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween Kills. Sinead Moriarty chats to me about her favourite movie. And documentary maker Ross Whitaker on The Man Who Broke the Bookies. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I was in Kerry for most of the week this week on a work thing. And it was absolutely gorgeous to be there. I've been to Kerry many times, but sometimes you need reminding of the beauty that lies, you know, three hours from where I live anyway. And uh, I swam on a lake at seven o'clock in the morning, one of the mornings, one of the Killarney lakes. Very cold, but very beautiful. And uh, there was a hot pool to get into once you got out of it. That was sensational. That uh, mix up of temperatures, absolutely wonderful. Anyway, just want to keep you up to date on my travels, but don't fear. I, I still watch movies. I still watch TV shows. And this one in particular. All gamblers get bad ones. The trick is to try and survive them. I could see deeply how you could trick the bootmakers. For every coup that comes up, 50 fail. You know, is he cheating or is he not cheating? The bootmakers hate him. I mean, it's so, he's got their mystique about him. So I came up with this plan. There was only one way to do it, was to win big. That's a clip from Barney Curley, The Man Who Beat the Bookies, which was on RT1 on Monday night, 9.35, and is now available to view on The Player. It tells a story of how the trainer, that's Barney Curley, who died earlier this year, was landed one of the most famous coups in the history of racing in Bellewstown in 1975. He was an unusual character who was once a band manager, also a seminarian. And in later life, he became something of a, I suppose, a humanitarian, you might say. It was a fascinating documentary. It's directed by one of Ireland's best known and indeed best documentary makers. And I suppose an old friend of this show, Ross Whitaker, who's made such wonderful documentaries like Katie, all about Katie Taylor. And of course, Unbreakable, all about Mark Pollock. But that's only scratching the surface of all he's done and I'm delighted to say he's on the line now. Hi Ross, how are you? Hi John, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now listen, you know better than anyone when you're going to make a documentary, when one human being is making a documentary about another human being, that other human being must be a fascinating guy. This guy Barney Curley was really fascinating. Had this been in your mind for a long time that you you knew there was kind of gold here from a documentary point of view? Yeah, I mean, and look, I'm only one of many people that are involved sure. in making the documentary. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a story that I'd come across years ago. And also, I suppose, heard other people mention, you know, in passing, God, did you hear that Barney Curley story? Or I came across that. It's a fascinating one. And um, so it was always in the back of my mind as a story that, that you know, could be told really, really well. But I also heard, I suppose, that, that Barney was fairly um camera shy and private and and like to keep things under wraps so it was, it was one that i wasn't sure would ever come around and then right. i was approached by someone that had access to barney a guy called james bray who's a huge barney curly fan and horse racing man himself and he had been in touch with barney and um and they'd agreed to go ahead with something and he'd asked he asked me would i get on board 
And I said, well, it's on my list. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd love to, you know. And um, from there, we started the process um, back in 2019. Right. And listen, to get to the meat and potatoes of it, right? And I don't want to give a spoiler, but this coup that he pulled off at, at Bellewstown in 1975, the way you present her, it, it's almost like a thriller. It's, it's brilliantly done and you've recreated it. But just, it was basically, they had a horse in mind that could come good on the day. And he got all these people to go around the country and put bets on. But the genius of it, or, or and there's something like out of Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, was basically they blocked the use of a phone at the racing stadium and it all took place in about five minutes when you were doing this did you know that like this couldn't happen now this was something of its time and it was unique and would almost never happen again yeah and what I love about making documentaries is that you're presenting Ireland at different eras Mm. you know I did the boys in green and that was Ireland in the late 80s early 90s and I've done other documentaries and it's always wonderful when you can kind of give a sense of place and time and especially our home here Ireland you know what was it like in the 70s well smuggling tires across the border wasn't unusual you know the show bands um the troubles like there was so much going on and to be able to present a story against that backdrop I think is very enticing for a filmmaker and and then to have the minutiae of sort of a heist as you say Mm. as a kind of engine of the documentary as well is, is a really exciting thing to work with the difficulty was that there was very little archive so yeah you're recreating you're trying to recreate those elements and then place them with whatever archive archival material you have and, and as you say blocking the phone box was was the key factor because <laughs> it, it was the bookies at the racetrack back then that decided the price yeah and they didn't find out that barney had 300 people like 300 people all around Ireland putting on small bets. If they couldn't find that out, then the price at the racetrack would stay high and that would be the price that he would get. Um, And by having his friend kind of in the phone box, uh, commandeering it by pretending that he had a sick aunt in Drogheda Hospital. It's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it was lovely in a way because it, it wasn't like they they surrounded the phone box and wouldn't let people in it. It was done in such a kind of Irish way, you know. Yeah. Oh, you know, you can imagine people going, "Oh, look, there's obviously a moment there that, that I can't interrupt," um, yeah. just through a level of kind of Irish politeness and understanding and empathy. So it was only for twenty minutes that he had to block that phone box, but that was the key bit that that kept the price high. Um, and what he said was it was his worst horse, but it won a dire race. So mm. um, he, in the end, it worked out, but it could have gone wrong, obviously, you know, yeah. but, um, but I you, think that's you, the genius of him. Yeah. And you talk about Ireland in a different time. What I was struck by was just, you know, there was one phone at the track, like it would be impossible nowadays with mobile phones. So like to choreograph 300 people putting on bets, basically with the use of one phone. I mean, it's Herculean yeah. <laughs> in the way it was carried out. It was incredible. And back then, you know, when we didn't have mobiles, uh, word traveled differently, you know, and, and mm. bookmakers always had their finger on the pulse. And if any word of it got out, it, it would very quickly, people would rumble what was going on. And, and that would be the end of it. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take much for the bookies to, to realize what was going on. So it's the trust that people had in Barney. And he had a, such a, I suppose, incredible personality that people just loved him and, and trusted him. And, um, the trust that he could have in those people that they would stay quiet and, yeah. and do it all in this kind of clandestine way in this operation um, was what allowed it to happen. And, you know, I only met him once for that day. We did the interview because COVID happened afterwards, but, um, okay. but he, he did have this kind of magnetic kind of presence and, I don't know. He just, the way he looked, you know, when you looked at him, like he just had your attention, yeah. you know, and, and that seems to be the way that people uh, who knew him 
uh, responded to him as well. His his character was fascinating to me. Like you're talking to him about show bands and how he was this manager, and then he just casually throws in, "Oh, and of course I was smuggling tires across the border while I was moving the bands around." And then like later on, you know, and I I'm keen that I don't give too much away about it because I'd love people to watch it as I'm sure you would on the player. You know, when this all came good for him, he went off and did something else with his life and like the motivation of his life, it was unclear to me. I don't think it was about the money. What's your sense of that? Well, it's an interesting one because Barney's parents, I think, were a huge impact on mm. his life, whether or not, and I suppose they are for all of us in, in various different ways, but Barney's dad had a really tragic episode with bookmakers um, when he was a young man um, and lost kind of, the, he lost, I suppose, what he had. And um, so, and then, but then the other side, and I suppose that fed into some of the choices that Barney made in life. But then on the other side, he describes his mother in the most affectionate way as this incredibly giving person. Yeah. And I think throughout Barney's life, you get to see both sides of his personality. Um, this person who was incredibly shrewd, incredible planner, um, understood how the world of horse racing and, and betting and, and so on worked, but also someone with a huge heart. And that really came out in the latter part of his life when when he um, kind of dedicated his entire life to, to helping others. Yeah, absolutely. And just so we know, people can now watch this back on the RT player, right? As of yeah. now, right? Yeah, and also on the BBC iPlayer, if anyone's listening in the UK, um, it's also on the BBC iPlayer and it's going to broadcast on BBC later in the month. Brilliant. Well, my sister-in-law, Aoife, who I called my sister last week, lives in the UK and she listens to this show every week. And I know she'd be fascinated by this. Ross, you've never made a bad documentary. And Barney Curley, the man who beat the bookies, is no exception. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Now, The Last Jewel opens in cinemas this Friday, the 15th of October, and it is from director Ridley Scott and stars Jodie Comer, Matt Damon, Adam Driver. Ben Affleck is in there as well. You may have heard about this. This was the movie that caused Matt Damon to be in Ireland for a lot longer than he intended to be when he was filming it here. And it's The Last Jewel. And it's based apparently on a true-ish story about the very last jewel that was ever recorded in human history. It takes place in 14th century France. Matt Damon plays Jean de Garot, a knight who challenges his former friend and squire, Jacques Legree, who's played by Adam Driver. He challenges him to a duel after the alleged rape of Legree's wife. And Legree's wife, Marguerite, is played brilliantly by Jodie Comer. It's a great movie. It's It's got that Ridley Scott epic vibe, because they do. How could it not be? It's Ridley Scott. But it also has a huge amount going on in it. It's a very modern tale because the premise, I suppose, or the conceit of the movie is that the same story is told from three different points of view, Matt Damon's, Adam Driver's and Jodie Cormer. So you have this three retellings of one story, which works brilliantly well. So it's quite modern in that way. And it's quite modern in terms of what it has to say about, I guess, victim blaming and things like that. It is a great movie. Now, Ridley Scott directed it. Jodie Comer stars, and I got to have a brief but very entertaining chat with both of them. Ridley, I've been a big fan for a long time. Jodie, I'm a recent fan to you as well, so it's lovely to talk to you both. Ridley, you know you're a serious deal when someone like me is watching a movie going, gosh, this is such a classic Ridley Scott movie. And then as it went on, I was thinking, there's a lot going on here. There's this kind of, I don't know, polyphony of 
voices telling the same story and then there's maybe some kind of modern concern about victim blaming and all did you see it that way that this was like a good old-fashioned movie and yet so incredibly modern in another way or maybe you don't think about things like that when you're making a movie. no i think it was a very modern movie and a, and a very modern way of telling what would have been you know let's say a more straightforward narrative and what attracted me is to most certainly was to tell the stories from three different, certainly very much two different points of view. The mm. third point of view being from the person who wasn't there, who was the angry husband. But mm. to tell the story from Legree and Madame Lady Carouge, it was essential. Yeah, that's that's what that's the salt, pepper, and mustard in the entire story. It makes it <laughs> worthwhile. That's a great analogy, and that's why you are who you are because of those analogies. <laughs> Jody, you know, you get a script from Ridley Scott and you say, yes, I imagine, even almost without reading it. You must have been chuffed then when you read it and saw just what a fantastic part yours is. Because in a way, and not to do disservice to your the two men you act with, or the three, I suppose, but yours is the central story of the movie. Were you delighted when you read the script? Absolutely. You know, it was... And it feels like the only way to tell this story and give this woman justice is to make sure that her truth is told. You know, what really struck me when I know I spoke with Ridley and I read the book and kind of delved into the history of it was, you know, this duel happened because of something that she experienced and yet there was so little about her. Mm. Um, so to have that opportunity, you know, to really tell her story and work with Nicole and Matt and Ben and Ridley. Um, yeah, it was such a, a pinch me moment. And I think it's clever, you know? I remember when I got the script and I'm reading it and I'm going, all right, well, where is she, you know? And then and then you, you, you land with her, which I thought was clever for many reasons. You know, one being, I feel like when you're, when you're left with her story, there's such strength in that. Mm. And also it kind of holds a mirror up to us of just presuming that she's going to be a kind of, piece in their in their story and not really have their own sense of self or narrative um so i think it's it's really a really smart script yeah it, it certainly is it's a beautiful ending as well Ridley incidentally mm. but i won't give any spoilers of that Ridley just to play the irish card slightly but you filmed it or a part of it in ireland uh Matt Damon famously had to stay there for months on end, which we were all <laughs> delighted about. No, did you always want Ireland, or is it just, you know, I don't know, the taxes are cheap, or it's a happy, it's a happy accident? Boringly, the taxes are better than France. <laughs> <laughs> but but we That's started it. in France. I did about six weeks at the major castles and a lot of the landscape stuff in France. But then we knew we had to move for financial reasons. Then we moved to Ireland. That said. All your set building in uh, Ardmore mm -hmm. was sensational. The, the the Irish crew was fantastic. Mm, I work there again in a heartbeat. Wonderful. And Jody, just on that, you know, they say Liverpool is actually the capital of Ireland. Mm. Uh, you haven't, despite hanging out with people like Ridley Scott, you've still got that glorious Scouse accent. I'm an Everton fan, incidentally. I don't Yay! want to know. Oh, wonderful. Are you You're too? like the only person. Oh, are you seriously? Are you? Brilliant. Yeah, everyone's also always a Liverpool fan. Well, I, I was love just this. I was just going to say, you haven't lost the accent. Do you go out of your way not to? Do you know what? Yeah, I, I hope so. I think my accent fluctuates depending on who, I, who I'm with. Um, you know, when I go home, it 
becomes really strong. Um, but yeah, I'd never ever want to lose my accent. I'm sure it's probably not as harsh as and and strong as it was when I was younger. Um, but it's such a part of of who I am, you know. Um, it's certainly not harsh. Yeah. And Ridley, you sound exactly the same, which is wonderful to hear as well. So my time is up. Thank you for talking to me. Oh, it's lovely to meet you. Bye-bye. Cheers. You knew what would happen to me should you lose this duel. You knew and you didn't tell me. God will not punish those who tell the truth. My fate and our child's fate will be written not by God's will, but by which old man will tire first. How dare you speak to me this way? What have I to lose? I begged you to find another way, and now I might be burned alive. I am risking my life for you. Hmm. You are risking my life so you can fight your enemy and save your bride. And that could render our child an orphan. Or did you not think of that? The clip there from The Last Duel. And before that, you heard me talking to Ridley Scott and Jodie Comer. Ridley Scott on taxes in Ireland and Jodie Comer on being an Everton fan, which was nice to hear. And I did not know that. I did not know that she was an Everton fan. So God bless her and God bless all the toffees who listen to this show and any other team you care to support. I'm fine with that. And of course, The Last Duel is in cinemas now. Uh, it landed on October the 15th. I, I say it every week, but maybe... You know, maybe it's no point saying it anymore, but you really need to see this one in the cinemas. Trust me. Up next, Mark Royal on another new cinema release, Halloween Kills. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talk's TV and movie show. Before the break, we're talking about The Last Duel, but the other big release of the week is undoubtedly this. We are the survivors of Michael Myers. Glory, what do we do? We fight. Mom. Our family. We'll kill him. We're gonna hunt him down and we're gonna put an end to this. He is not gonna stop killing until we stop him. If you track Michael's victims, that's a straight line. To Michael's childhood home. Someone's in our house. I wanna take his mask off and see the life leave his eyes. Yes, that is a clip from Halloween Kills starring Jamie Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis. And it is the 12th, if I'm not mistaken, reiteration, sequel, whatever you want to call it, of the Halloween franchise. I'm delighted to be joined by a regular reviewer, Mark Royal. How are you, sir? Hi, John. Sorry, I have a cold, so sorry if I sound even more nasally than, than usual. I'm not picking up much of it, you know. I think it's in your head. Ha ha. So uh, let's battle on. Okay. I mentioned this was the 12th reiteration or or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure what the correct word is. What's going on in Halloween Kills? Um, Well, I had very, very high hopes for this one. Um, John Carpenter's original Halloween from 1978. It's one of my favorite horrors. And as a fan, I was genuinely surprised at how good the, the 2018 uh, Halloween was it was directed by David Gordon Green. Yeah, so it, and sorry to cut across you, but between that movie, no, 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 we'll get to that. But we should just say for listeners, then, like that one was probably the eleventh one, but there was like Halloween six, seven, eight, it like was. it went on in the eighties so, and nineties and all sorts of things. 
in a nutshell, what the 2018 Halloween did was it said, forget all about 40 years worth of, of the terrible sequels and the reboots and the yeah. retcons and everything that came in between. This movie is a direct sequel to John Carpenter's original and mm-hmm. it worked brilliantly. It had it had just the right amount of, of nostalgia. And when it did use throwbacks, it did it in a very clever way. Um, it's And what it did was it said, look, don't worry. You can come back in. The water is fine. And mm. um, on the other hand, uh, this one is kind of like sitting into a rusty tin bath that's been left sitting in the field with with bog water and, and scummy leaves on the top. Bog um, water is never good when you're using it as an analogy. No, nothing good no, will follow, really. I mean, it, it sticks rigidly to the sequel law of diminishing returns. I just wasn't expecting it to diminish this quickly. Okay, let's just talk a bit what it's about. So Halloween at its core has a, a very evil, disturbed man called Mike Myers, right? Mike Michael Myers. Mike Myers Michael is the Myers. guy who yeah. did, uh, <laughs> did Austin Powers. That's very true. Michael Myers. I mean, technically he's a Mike, right? If you're a Michael, you're a Mike. But yes, yeah, Michael Myers. He, he's not into the whole brevity thing, I think. <laughs> um, so anyway, the story here. In 1978, uh, Michael Myers, he escapes from a mental institution. He goes on a killing spree in a t- in the town of Haddonfield. And then 40 years later, he does the same thing in the same town. And um, then uh, Laurie Strode, who was in the 1978 movie, um, she... Uh, she's basically her and uh, three generations of Strodes, her, uh, Laurie Strode and her daughter and her granddaughter. They've lured the, the, the psychotic serial killer into a trap and they've burnt him alive in her basement. And then this one, Halloween Kills, picks up immediately afterwards. And needless to say that Michael Myers did not burn to a crisp in the basement after all. And Jamie Lee Curtis is the matriarch of the family. Jamie Lee Curtis is a grandmother here. Yeah, mm. she has a, a, her daughter. She has an estranged daughter and then a, a granddaughter as well. So there's three generations of, of Strodes. You would think uh, the Strodes might just move town. <laughs> might well, be a lot easier. See, the thing is, that's the thing. With it. What was really effective in the 2018 movie was that it it is it, um, she she was given this this really meaty role and it did this very clever um, re- role reversal thing of Predator and Prey. And basically, Laurie Strode had spent the last 40 years waiting for Michael to come back just so that she could kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this one, unfortunately, Jamie Lee Curtis is, is wasted. She gets shunted off into a hospital bed for most of the movie. Okay. And um, also what the, the, the 2018 one did was it kind of touched on what exactly a trauma like that would do to a person in the long term. But, and, and it worked really, really well in, in, in that one. But what this one tries to do the same thing with different characters and it doesn't work at all. So instead of Jamie Lee Curtis dealing with that trauma, we have um, this uh, steroid sweaty Anthony Michael Hall uh, running around with a baseball bat shouting evil dies tonight. And, and frankly, it's, it's mortifying to watch. Oh dear. And you know, the the original one was just eerie and scary. I didn't see the 2018 one, but I remember you raving about it. So there's no scares in this. No, there isn't. Um, what you like the thing about the, the 2018 one is that it was, it was tight as a drum and it was really creepy. And mm. it, it, I, I, you do think like on the one happened, this could happen, which is what is so off putting about it. I mean, basically it's just a psychopath and overalls and a, a creepy William Shatner mask. Yeah. And there's nothing that, 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 I mean, apart from a, a tad suspension of disbelief, there's nothing 
beyond the realms of possibility. All of that stuff could happen. But what they've done here is they've turned him into this kind of superhuman, unkillable immortal. And mm-hmm. it's just not in keeping with the spirit of the original at all. It's got a very, very nasty streak this one as well i think it's kind of more in common it's got more in common with rob rob zombies reboots than than with the original Mm -hmm. and what people often forget is that there's no blood or gore in the 1978 movie and i think in fact i know that the body count is five people and a dog and as i said that the terror is achieved through uh, camera placement and lighting yeah and michael myers is used sparingly and when he shows up it has a real impact yeah there's there's absolutely no impact here at all he's on screen constantly and it gets really really boring it settles into this pattern of never-ending series of kills that that get increasingly violent and gory and increasingly less effective and the body count is enormous and mm. it gets to the stage where it just loses all impact some new character that you've never seen before gets introduced and within seconds they're they're dead um it's almost like watching a series of sketches it's 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 bizarre mm. you see you know the, the point of horror like horror 101 is that mm. the, the terror the evil guy the evil woman even the giant fish in in jaws i know it's not a horror movie but you keep that up your sleeve you just gently dangle it a little more each time like the point not to do a philosophical deconstruction of horror but well Mm. here i go anyway but the whole point of horror is that you just you give them little bits that's what creates the horror there has to be a crescendo yeah exactly you you use you use the shape sparingly the shape Mm. in the in the dark corner and what worked really well in the 28 movie was that it was heading in a in a very confident direction it knew where it wanted to go and how it was going to get there and this one is just it's aimless and directionless and it's 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 frankly it's baffling the plan originally was to shoot the 28 2018 movie and this one back to back um but then um they decided well let's wait and see how that one does and let's see what works in the this one and and we can change it so it's just it's 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 bizarre that this is one is so shockingly bad it's it's hard to get my head around that the fact that this was it was the same creative team that were involved Mm. Uh, just, tell me, J- Jamie Lee Curtis, does she, you know, show up for work? She, I'd say she probably regrets signing on for three movies. She's for most of the oh. movies, she's in a hospital bed. There's, it's, it's just, it's idiotic. There's stuff that just doesn't make any sense at all. I'm not going to go into specifics, but there's this, okay. there's this bit in the middle with with a lynch mob, and they get whipped up into this frenzy, and they target the wrong guy as Michael Myers, and. The, the guy that they target as Michael Myers, it's a short, fat, bald guy that looks exactly <laughs> like Sam Kinison. Do you remember Sam Kinison, the, the American stand-up? Comedian, Maybe. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a bit like confusing Danny DeVito with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> but there's just, all the way through, there's, there's stuff like that that just doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. And okay. It's not even so bad. It's good. It's just. It's just bad. I was. Okay. I was honestly. I was literally throwing my hands in the air watching this, and I was. I rolled my eyes so hard, John, that I. I, I saw the under the underneath of my brain. Wow! Wow! Some great analogies this week. A big bath of bog water is my. I don't know if I had that 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 simile. The bath simile worked out when I started speaking, but there you go. No, I, I think it works. I think it works. But bog water, as I say, is never good. Or seeing the undercarriage of your brain isn't either. So what are you going to say stars-wise? Um, the, well, the music is great. <laughs> I like the um, wrapping paper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm giving it a one. I mean, yeah, it, is, okay. it is pure muck. And as I say, I have no idea how they could have gotten the, the, the previous one 
so yeah. right. I've gotten this one so, so wrong. Yeah. And you are a Halloween devotee, so you've thought about this, as you think about everything. So that is very disappointing to hear. Lovely to hear from you, of course. Now, next week, I'm more hopeful. We have the new Big version week. of Dune. We also have, you know, one of our favorite living directors, Wes Anderson, his new movie, The French Dispatch. So uh, better times ahead, hopefully, Mark. Big week, yeah. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Up next, author Sinead Moriarty on her favourite movie. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talk's TV and movie show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined now by novelist Sinead Moriarty, who's one of Ireland's most popular and best selling novelists, having recently just published her 15th novel. And she joins me now to chat about her favourite movie, which indeed also has. A kind of uh, book reference as well, but more of that anon. Sinead, how are you? Great. Good to be here. I love movies, love talking about them. This is this is right up my street. Brilliant. The last part of that sentence was you meant to say, I love your movie show as well. But anyway, you can't have them all, you know. That goes like saying. <laughs> so listen, tell our listeners what your favorite movie is. So my favorite movie, some might consider a bit of a cheese ball, but I love it and I think it's underrated. Uh, is The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. Um, although Robert Redford, I think, was probably already very well known amongst the ladies at the time, I think The Way We Were made him a complete kind of romantic lead. He, I think he's at his most handsome and gorgeous, and Barbara Streisand is luminous. I mean, it's very much her movie. It was one of the first very female-driven movies of the time. I mean, it is her movie. You know, it's all about her and her character, Katie Morosky. Now, it's a deeply romantic movie. And I know it's listed sometimes as, you know, one of the great rom-coms of all time, which might be kind of a reductive way of describing it. But just remind people roughly what it's about. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't put it as a rom-com. I mean, that that's definitely um, a, a false advertising so it's about Katie, who Barbara Streisand plays, and she's kind of Jewish, radical lefty, has had to graft to get into university, never had anything given to her. And she falls completely head over heels for Hubble Gardner, who's played by uh, Robert Redford, who is a privileged wasp from a very wealthy family, you know, probably not about, about as deep as a puddle. But um, for some, they are very attracted to each other. Um, well, she's obviously attracted to him because he's absolutely dropped dead gorgeous, but he's very attracted to her. Um, he kind of loves the fact that she challenges him um, and he's not used to that, you know, and she's extremely bright. And so is he actually. Um, so they kind of, they fall in and out of love. Um, she definitely always has him on a pedestal and you always feel she acts so well because you always, you're always slightly nervous for her that, you know, she's more in love with him than he is with her and the movie goes on and they end up moving to Hollywood he's a writer and for his career they move to Hollywood but she just doesn't fit in because whereas he used to love her passion and her you know um the fact that she was such an advocate for the you know the minorities and all of that um he suddenly finds her a, a bit embarrassing um because she's always kind of spouting on about communism and all that at parties and suddenly while he used to find that kind of endearing and sexy he now finds her kind of embarrassing and they have a child together and then eventually the the catalyst to their breaking up is that she finds out that he cooperated with the House of Un-American Activities by giving up some names of people. Mm. You know, he worked with who he thought had communist um, 
inclinations and she just can't get past that because that's such a betrayal yeah. for her um and they yeah. break up and it's devastating because she loves him but she just can't be with him she knows she doesn't fit in and she tries so hard yeah star-crossed love and all that you know for a lot of people and i'm ashamed to say myself included i first became aware of it through sex in the city where carrie compares her romance with mr big to the relationship between Streisand and Redford. Uh, are you aware of that? Do you think that's a decent comparison or does that dilute the movie a bit as well? Absolute nonsense. There's no comparison. Um, no, not at all. And, you know, when she used that line, your girl's lovely Hubble, it actually, I actually find it very irritating because I just feel it's very precious and it shouldn't be used. The only good thing about that happening in Sex and the City is that it opened up the movie too, like you said, uh, yourself and other people who hadn't heard of it. But um, it's actually quite a nuanced film. I think, you know, I, I said earlier, I think it has been underrated because it's really quite heartbreaking. Um, there's a lot to it, you know. And the last scene, which is just devastating. I mean, you know they can't be together and you know it was the right decision. And then they bump into each other. So it was six years later and they've broken up and he's getting out of a beautiful car outside a five-star hotel with his very glamorous new partner. And she's you know, giving out leaflets to ban the bomb. And they have mm. this kind of, you know, tender but awkward conversation. And he asks how their daughter is. And it's just really sad. It's just really, really, really sad. And then she, she has that famous line where she says, your girl's lovely Hubble. And there's a lot of debate mm. about whether she's talking about his daughter or his new partner who's standing on the other side of the road waiting for him to come back to her. So, you know, it's just... um it's yeah, I do I think I think it's a kind of underrated and undervalued. And I think if, if people watch it, they will be surprised by how incredibly moving it is. And and you know, there is quite a bit of politics in the background as well. And interestingly, um Redford didn't want to do it because he felt it was very much a vehicle for Barbara Streisand to shine. And it was Sidney Pollock who persuaded him. Mm. And I don't think he regretted it in the end. And listen, you had a novel uh, from 2015, if I'm not mistaken, which I'll be honest about, I'm afraid I haven't read, called The Way We Were. Do you, I don't know, do you have to pay copyright or anything like that? No, it's funny. We were trying to cover the title for that book and we're coming up with lots of different titles. And then The Way We Were just came up and I just thought, God, it's perfect. And I really kind of loved the fact that, it, that my favourite movie title was going to be one of my book titles. Um, so it was actually kind of just a lovely, mm. a lovely, I don't know, little thing that happened. I mean, the book has absolutely no correlation to the movie whatsoever, but it was, uh, it was, I suppose in a way it was my little nod to the movie. Well, it clearly is your favorite movie and it's, it's very well described. And I agree with you. It's a movie that's worthy of, of people re-looking at because I suppose as well, the music, you know, not that it gets in the way, but oh. sometimes that movie's more famous for the soundtrack than the actual movie. Yeah, but the soundtrack is so beautiful. I mean, it's just stunning. I think they won the Oscar actually for best song. Mm. Um, and her voice, I mean, her voice is just the most amazing instrument, uh, Barbara Streisand. But um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I just, I, every time I watch it, I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I've seen it so many times, but I'm always, I always get something else from it. You know, I think, as I said, I think it's quite nuanced. Um, and I think she is just magnificent in it. I think she's just phenomenal because you really, really feel for her. You just you, you, you feel for her because you know the relationship isn't going to work. You just know in your heart and you're just kind of dreading the day when that happens. 
Yeah. Well, look, that's very well described. Can I ask you then, you're probably asked this a lot, but it's someone who's written 15 novels. It, it, it's important information we have to glean from you. There are so many people, particularly in uh, lockdown as well, who've, who've flirted with the idea of writing. What's What do you suggest to people who say, I want to get started, but I don't know where to begin. I have the idea of a story, but I don't know what's going to happen. Is it as simple as just start, just sit down and try it? Or do you think people should, you know, go to writing classes or, or, or talk to their friends about it? Or what advice do you give to the aspiring writer who hasn't even started yet? Um, I think I always say writing a book is like running a marathon. It's like you put one foot in front of the other, you put one word in front of another. And if you really are serious about it, just carve out half an hour, 45 minutes every day, get up earlier, go to bed later, whatever it is, and just start putting one word in front of another. The blank page can be very daunting, but it's amazing what you can do in a short space of time. I do usually recommend that people join a writing group because it's impossible to be objective about your own writing. And it's always good to get, you know, unbiased feedback. So there would be my two, my two kind of key pieces of advice. I mean, the fact of the matter is you just have to get on with it. Like a lot of things in life. So finally then, Sinead, your latest book is for younger readers. It's The New Girl. And at its source, it has uh, two girls, one of whom is a Syrian refugee. Just tell us w what's going on in that. Yeah. So uh, The New Girl is my first book for children. I've written 15 books for adults. Um, so The New Girl is about little Syrian refugee. She's 11 years of age and she lands in Ireland. And really, I wrote it because I think it's really important to promote compassion and kindness in kids. And also the best way for a kid to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes is to sort of immerse themselves in a character, I think. So I did a lot of work, work with the Refugee Council, with this beautiful Syrian family. And so I'm very happy with the outcome of the book. And I think, you know, as I said, it was a passion project for me. I spent a good few years researching, writing it and making sure it was absolutely as it should be. And I'm really happy with the outcome. Yeah. And the, and the kids who've read it so far have loved it. And they, you know, it has made them ask questions about refugees and made them think of outside their own little bubble, which I think is so important. And the earlier you get to kids, I've got three kids of my own, the earlier you get to them, I think the better. So let's try and, you know, let's try and get get some kind of compassion and kindness and let's open their minds and hearts to other worlds. And so that's why I wrote it. Here, here. Well, The New Girl is available in all good bookshops. It's available from Sinead Moriarty, who is the author of it. Her favourite movie is The Way We Were. You can also find her book, The Way We Were, which, if I'm not mistaken, won a award back in 2015 for uh, during the Irish Book Awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, she must be doing something right. Thanks a lot, <laughs> Sinead. Thanks so much. I'll change. No, don't change. You're your own girl. You have your own style. But then I won't have you. Why can't I have you? Why? Because you push too hard. Every damn minute. I mean, we don't... <laughs> There's no time ever to just relax and enjoy living. Everything's too serious to be so serious. If I push too hard, it's because I want things to be better. I want us to be better. I want you to be better. Sure, I make waves. I mean, you have to, and I'll keep making them until you're every wonderful thing you should be and will be. You'll never find anyone as good for you as I am to believe in you as much as I do or love you as much. I know that. A clip there from The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford as chosen by Sinead Moriarty, the author, whose latest book, The New Girl, is available now.
That's it for this week. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm on Newstalk. Get in touch with me at any stage. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Have a good week and take care.